I thought the name for what you just described was the gospel or Christianity. Yes, right. Uh, but I, I learned later that it's something called penal substitutionary atonement theory. Penal means it's about punishment. Substitutionary because Jesus becomes the substitute for our punishment. Atonement is a complicated word uh, with an interesting history. Uh, but in this case, it means um, how do we become reconciled with a God who wants who is bound by justice to torture us with eternal conscious torment. And so that one of the first things that really shocked me was to find out that that understanding of Christianity that is encoded in little tracts and is encoded in a thousand gospel songs and hymns uh, that have been written in the last few hundred years, that understanding of the gospel never even existed in the Christian faith until sometime around 1000 AD. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. My name is Glenn Sieper. This is episode number 23 of the What If Project podcast, and it is great to have you here. Uh, today we have a very special guest on. His name is Brian McLaren, and you'll hear more about him in just a moment, but one of my favorite uh, human beings. Uh, very cool conversation coming up. But I wanted to tell you really quick that uh, this is the first episode where I'm integrating in some uh, special music, which I'll be doing in most of the interviews that we have um, up in 2019. So today's music is from one of my friends. His name is uh, Young Citizen, and uh, we work together at Apple. And he's an amazing guy, uh, hip-hop artist out of Charlotte, North Carolina. That's Y-U-N-G Citizen. You can find him on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, all that stuff. Um, this is one of his instrumental pieces. Uh, so really, just a really great guy, really cool guy to support. So I would encourage you to go and find his music, listen to it, uh, reach out to him online and all various places. He will respond to you for sure. Um, I will put all of the links to his stuff in the show notes so you can listen to it there. Um, but anyway, Young Citizen is the special music for this episode with Brian McLaren. So sit back, um, enjoy, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn Sieper, and today uh, we are sitting down to learn from, I would say, one of the people who has majorly influenced uh, my thinking, my faith, and uh, my spirituality. He's an author, speaker, activist, and all-around amazing human being, uh, Brian McLaren. Brian, it's an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks for dropping by. Well, those are mighty kind words to begin with. Thanks, Glenn. <laughs> I'm really happy to be with you. Thanks. Uh, this is super. Um, Brian, I first came across your work when I was um, in my very first class in seminary. And uh, I'll never forget, the class was called The Church as a Social and Cultural Institution, which is an interesting um, title for a course. Yeah. Uh, but the professor had us read your book, A Generous Orthodoxy. Hmm. And um, that really opened up a door of... I would call it like 
uh, holy curiosity <laughs> that seemingly got wider and wider and wider with every passing year. And uh, then from there, I went on to read some of your other books. I heard you speak at a church in New Jersey. And then again, um, at the Wild Goose Festival this past July. And uh, before we go really too much further, I just wanted to thank you uh, for your work, because I know that I know you take some heat from uh, stuff that you've, that you've written, um, some of the things you teach that you stand for. But, you know, the world and the church, I think, is a better place and is really being stretched because of you. And I think that my life uh, is definitely different because of it. So thank you so much. Well, I, I take that to heart, and that is very, very encouraging. And I'll just say that whatever, you know, pushback and, and tension and so on that I experience is more than uh, rewarded by, uh, by knowing I've been of help to somebody like you. So that's encouraging. Thank you. That's great. Thank you so much. And I was wondering, before we get too far into our kind of the meat of our, our time together, maybe you could just take a few minutes to introduce yourself for our listeners who... Uh, maybe aren't as familiar with your work, maybe a little bit about who you are, what you do, what makes you tick, you know, that sort of stuff. Sure, uh, Glenn. Well, uh, I, I grew up in, I was born in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region. And um, I come from people of European descent, uh, English, Irish, Scottish, uh, probably got a bunch of Viking blood mixed in there. <laughs> and uh, uh, when I was a little boy, my great love was the outdoors and nature, and that certainly continues uh, to today. I got a little bit older, and I developed a love for reading, and that still continues today. I was brought up in a fundamentalist family. Um, we were in this little sect or denomination called the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, it's the same denomination that Garrison Keillor and Jim Wallace and hmm. uh, a few other people are from. Uh, and uh, 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 it was an upbringing with a whole lot of love and a whole lot of uh, fear in the sense that, you know, we had an angry God who would send us to be tortured in hell forever if we didn't get things just exactly right. Yeah. Um, but with but for all of us who were among the holy and the pure and the forgiven and justified, we, you know, were very loving to each other and had a very, very warm community. And one of the great things about my background was that I really learned the Bible. So I, you know, we... I had to sit through hours and hours and hours of sermons and family devotions and all the rest. So I learned the Bible very well at a young age. Um, I ended up, my, uh, my plan was to become a college English teacher. And uh, I uh, was on that track when I ended up becoming part of a little faith community that formed. And that ended up becoming a little church. And I ended up leaving teaching to become a pastor. And I was a pastor in the Washington DC area for 24 years. Um, and uh, that was a wonderful congregation uh, still uh, uh, exists and they're doing great work in the DC area called Cedar Ridge Community Church. And, hmm. um, uh, and Cedar Ridge, you know, way back in the eighties was kind of exploring some new territory. And um, uh, I, I started writing my first books when I was still a pastor there. I, uh, I started trying to write about this, these strange times we're in and how it just feels different being a Christian in these times and both because of things happening inside of Christianity and things happening in the culture and in the world at large. And uh, I left uh, the pastorate uh, 12 years ago to uh, write and speak and uh, be able to do some of the activist work that I'm passionate about uh, in, in my spare time. So that's what keeps me busy now. That's awesome. 
Um, I love that, that story and that just progression and that journey that you've been on. Um, it just really seems, uh, you know, that your past has prepared you for the present. I think that's really cool. Well, you know, the, growing up fundamentalist uh, uh, really had some advantages and some disadvantages, but mm-hmm. even the disadvantages become advantages. It's kind of like if you're a rocket ship and you get too close to the sun, uh, you've really got to fire up the rockets to get out of that gravity, you know, and so it, it puts some uh, momentum in you. And then uh, my interest in science was really, has really been important in my life. And then my love for literature. And I, I, I honestly can't think of anything that better prepared me for uh, reading literature than my exposure to the Bible and anything better for reading, interpreting the Bible than my exposure to literature. So I, I I'm very blessed. Yeah. That's really cool. Would you say that you feel that your like your English degrees and those things really helped you understand um, better about the different genres of the Bible and how they were written? So, so true. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, my fundamentalist background, we, we really read the Bible like as if we were lawyers dissecting a constitution and, yeah. uh, or, or a annotated code or some, you know, le- legal code. And, and every word had to be, uh, you know, parsed to try to figure out what was this binding on us or who was it binding on. And it really was a, a lawyerly way to read the text. Um, but every once in a while, a preacher would come in and you just felt like he, uh, there were no she preachers back then. Right. Um, he, he would read the text with some deeper affection and, and yeah. not just in an argument to prove who is right, but really looking for meaning and truth and, uh, and yeah, and, and, in in that way they had a, in a very literalist context, they had a literary way of reading the Bible. Yeah, that's good. And that's actually a perfect, um, segue into our conversation. Um, this, as you know, is the what if project and you've kind of glanced over the, uh, material of the project before it even kind of went live on the internet and gave me some feedback and stuff. But, um, you know, part of what we do here is kind of explore that question of what if there are ways of understanding the Bible that are different than the ways in which tradition has handed us? You know, what if there are ways of understanding God and Jesus and spirituality that are just different than how we typically do? And uh, since you've had such a, a big impact on how I think about the Bible and faith, I thought you'd be the perfect person to speak to regarding some of the bigger things that I've been wrestling with over the years in my own faith and that I know some of our listeners are wrestling with um, as well. So uh, that said, let's jump in. I have like two questions or topics that I want to run by you. And then three, um, if we have time uh, to get to it. And if not, we'll just have to have you back so we can talk about that last one uh, together. Um, But the first one, uh, I got done reading your book, um, The Great Spiritual Migration for a class I'm taking at school. And um, in the book, you talk a little bit about how we're typically raised in the church to believe that Jesus matters because he's the answer to a seriously deep problem. And you kind of alluded on this a little while ago, but the problem we say is that God is angry because we've sinned and therefore we deserve this death and this punishment. And so Jesus, God's son comes along, he dies in our place so that by believing in him, we might escape God's wrath and and go to heaven. So in essence, Jesus becomes our substitute. Um, God's wrath, like you said, is quieted for those of us who believe the right things about Jesus. Now that's how I was raised to believe. And um, I honestly held very tightly to that belief probably up until about two years ago when I started to see a huge 
um, disconnect between the angry God who's ready to smite anyone who believes the wrong thing and then the loving God that Jesus came to show us in the Gospels. Like the two in my mind just didn't really line up all that well anymore. And so with all of that, um, you suggest in your book that maybe this isn't the best way to understand why Jesus matters or for that matter, why Jesus came and died on the cross. So could you talk us a little bit through that um, line of thinking? Sure. Well, um, Glenn, uh, like you, that's what I was brought up with. And I didn't even know that it had a name. I thought the name for what you just described was the gospel or Christianity. Yes. Right. Uh, (laughs) But I, I learned later that it's something called penal substitutionary atonement theory. Penal means it's about punishment substitutionary because Jesus becomes the substitute for our punishment. Atonement is a complicated word uh, with an interesting history, uh, but in this case it means um, how do we become reconciled with a God who wants, who is bound by justice to torture us with eternal conscious torment. Mm-hmm. And so that w- one of the first things that really shocked me was to find out that that understanding of Christianity that is encoded in little tracts and is encoded in a thousand gospel songs and hymns uh, that have been written in the last few hundred years. That understanding of the gospel never even existed in the Christian faith Mm. until sometime around 1000 AD with someone named St. Anselm of Canterbury. Mm. Um, And before that, there were other theories of how the atonement worked. I I could run through them real quick if that means. Yeah, please. Yeah, so in the early church, there was something that was very, a theory that was very popular called the ransom theory. Hmm. Now, uh, this idea uh, really is, is intriguing. And, and the basic idea is that Satan kidnapped humanity hmm. and that um, the way God decided to get humanity back was by saying to Satan, I will let you torture and kill Jesus if you will let humanity free. If you will set humanity free and Satan thought, ah, this is a good deal. I'd love to torture and kill Jesus. And so, um, uh, Satan, you know, jumps at that deal, makes the deal with God, gets Jesus, kills Jesus. And then God tricks Satan Mm. by raising Jesus from the dead. Um, it's like God is the trickster. God's the, is clever and, and the devil is outfoxed. Uh, in fact, in the early uh, years, this was called the fishhook theory, because what they basically said is Jesus' humanity was like the worm, and uh, uh, Jesus' divinity was like the hook, and mm. the devil went for the bait and got uh, defeated. So that was the earliest theory in, in uh, the centuries after the New Testament was, uh, was written. And it was the dominant theory for a long time. Uh, you fast forward um, several hundred years, and a, a group of theologians started to feel that is not a great theory because mm. it makes the devil sound way too popular, uh, way too powerful, oh, I should say. Sure. And, and it makes God sound a little bit tricky mm. and almost like God is having to make deals with the devil. That doesn't sound like a very powerful God. And so then a new theory develops that's called the Christus Victor theory. And it, it, and the whole drama shifts from making a deal with the devil to uh, the enemy stops being the devil and the enemy becomes death. Mm-hmm. And so the focus becomes uh, God defeating 
uh, death through the resurrection of Jesus. Again, very far from the penal substitutionary yeah. theory. Um, the, now the enemy is this abstraction called death. Interestingly, in the Middle Ages, you can find woodcuts and even carvings on church doors uh, and, and, and other illustrations where death is personified as this big monster with a wide gaping mouth and death is swallowing human beings. And when they go down into death's stomach, uh, the devils are down there torturing you in stomach acid, basically. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then one of the images is that death tries to swallow Jesus and Jesus is so powerful, he gets stuck in death's throat and huh. he chokes death to death. That, that's the kind of imagery. Death is wow. not um, And then you get to about year 1,000 and St. Anselm isn't satisfied with either uh, the ransom theory or the Christus Victor theory. And he uh, develops this other theory that's based on the idea of a medieval lord or a medieval king who has honor and God's honor is... Uh, is desecrated by human sin. And, and to save God's honor from de- being desecrated by human sin, you know, this kind of punishment must happen. God must get revenge on those who dishonored God. And so Jesus comes to, in a sense, absorb God's fury and revenge at human uh, upstart humans who dishonored God. And that becomes the dominant theory. Um, interestingly, later on, uh, not, not too long after that, another theory develops. It develops in the Franciscan tradition, uh, and it's often called the moral influence theory that says, actually, no, God isn't angry at us. Um, uh, God loves us, and our sin is like a disease. God doesn't hate us because we have the disease. God wants to rescue us from the disease. Mm. And God sends Jesus to evoke our empathy. When we see Jesus suffering, it shows God's love, and that evokes our empathy and our repentance. And instead of going against God and hurting God and hurting others, now we want our hearts to be softened, so we turn to God. So it's just a, a survey of some of the main theories, and each of them can be, you know, divided into sub-theories and so on. But those are the main ones sure. that have been dominant in Christian history. Huh. How did, you know, in your, in your estimation, how did the penal substitutionary atonement theory like how did that become the dominant view like how did the other ones get pushed aside to the point where we pretty much never hear about them in church but this other thing becomes the entity that swallows up all of the other ones yeah well let let me say first of all um c.s lewis never liked penal substitutionary theory Mm. and if you've read the lion the witch and the wardrobe in that uh children's series especially in the in the first uh book uh he, um, C.S. Lewis actually uses the ransom theory. He tries to resurrect the ransom theory because he just didn't mm. think the penal substitutionary theory uh, made a lot of sense. And um, in major sectors of the church, the Christus Victor theory was dominant. Um, uh, more, let's say more moderate or progressive sectors of Catholicism have really leaned in toward the Christus Victor theory. Mm. Um, if you want, we can come back and talk about Eastern Orthodoxy because they've been in a completely, they, they haven't even been part of this debate. They've been on a different, uh, different track altogether. Oh. But um, uh, in, in, what I think happened in Western Christianity is the sector of Catholicism that believed in penal substitutionary atonement got into an argument with Martin Luther 
And, and in a sense, the Protestants and the Catholics argued about who qualifies for the benefits of penal substitutionary atonement theory and how you qualify. And in a certain sense, by arguing about the who and the how, you end up reinforcing the underlying assumption that penal substitution is what it's all about. Mm. And um, that brings up another whole question. There's a group of Lutheran scholars who say, you know what, Martin Luther never really bought into penal substitution. He was much more of a Christus Victor and so on. So it's, Mm. you know, it's all, as most things are in the scholarly world, highly contested, but it's way more interesting than most people realize. And when evangelicals, fundamentalists, charismatics, Pentecostals, who think that penal substitution has always been Christian orthodoxy, uh, you know, when they learn the truth, they, they realize what they think of as Christian orthodoxy has really only been that way for a few hundred years. Mm. And we assume it's been that way forever. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Now you were talking about um, how Eastern orthodoxy is very different. Can you touch on that a little bit? Sure. Um, interestingly, Eastern orthodoxy has just been part of a different discussion Mm. for for eastern orthodoxy they never believed that god's wrath is the problem jesus is trying to solve Mm. Um, and one of the reasons uh, maybe i should say it this way that was never their primary understanding and i have to say in general because obviously eastern orthodoxy is as varied as anything else but in general eastern my eastern orthodox friends say to me you Western Christians, Catholics and Protestants, think of sin as an infraction, a breaking of law. In Eastern Christianity, we think of sin as an infection, a disease. We use the disease model rather than the legal model. Yeah. And so we understand Jesus coming to heal our disease, um, not uh, Jesus coming to accept our punishment. And, uh, and in fact, one of the ways that they picture Jesus healing our disease is to say that when God is, pours God's self into Jesus, who is human flesh and is matter and is part of the earth, it's God pouring God's self into the earth and, and, and into all of creation. And when God, in a sense, you almost imagine a syringe Mm-hmm. sending medicine into an a antibiotic, into a sick, uh, sick body. Uh, God is pouring God's self as medicine into not just Jesus' body, but into all of humanity and, in fact, all of creation and all the material world. And that's why in Eastern Orthodoxy, their vision is it's not just that we're trying to be, God's trying to save us from, uh, you know, God's wrath and hell. No, God is trying to save us from evil and sin and injustice by pouring God's self into us so that we more and more are full of God's uh, being in nature. That's so good. Wow. What an image that is of the, of the syringe, almost like a syringe coming from heaven into the world and bringing medicine. Yeah. Yes. In in that sense, the incarnation is like an injection, right? Now, obviously they didn't use that image. Sure. Yeah. But, But I think it's a it's a fair representation of what the incarnation means in uh, in Eastern Orthodox thought. It's God bonding God's self with all all of creation. It's it's really quite it's a lot of my friends speak of it as cosmic. It's a vision Mm -hmm. of the cosmic uh, dimensions of Christ. Yeah. Now, if you think about like it's so much different because the, the penal substitution, if you think about that, you know, the healing only comes if. 
I believe the right thing. Like it's, it's hinging on what my response is. Whereas this way, you know, Jesus's work and the incarnation and the cross, like the healing comes regardless, like the healing, just the healing flows from heaven to earth. And ultimately God will reach his goal of renewing all things through that great work of Christ. It's a very different way. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very different dimension of good news. The whole story is very, very different. Um, you're right. And if I could just add, uh, from my personal experience, uh, Glenn, one of the things that really shook me up in this process, I, I, I was a preacher, you know, I was preaching a couple of times every Sunday and I was leading Bible studies throughout the week and I'm a Bible guy, right? (laughs) I I was, I was in my forties before I ever realized that in the old Testament, nobody believed in hell. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my Christian upbringing made me think, oh, that's why they did sacrifices, because they wanted the blood of the animals to cover them so that they wouldn't go to hell. Oh, it had nothing to do with it. In the Old Testament, nobody believed in hell. In fact, there's very, very flimsy evidence anywhere for even belief in an afterlife. Mm. So whatever uh, God meant to uh, the people and whatever sin meant, it didn't mean God's going to torture me forever in uh, in you know, in my soul being placed into a place called hell, yeah, just wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and and I remember, <coughs> I remember when I realized that, I it just my all of my theological categories came crashing down, and I I needed to find some new diagnoses and prescriptions and understandings. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think for me, like that door opened a few years back when I read um, Rob Bell's Love Wins. And yes. um, then I read uh, recently N.T. Wright's book, uh, Surprised by Hope. Yes. And he really takes apart that whole idea of hell and really shows that that really wasn't anywhere on the radar, anywhere in the Bible, and that that really came about in a much later period. And we've read the Bible almost backwards through the lens of this, um, you know, this theology, so to speak, that we've developed over time. You know, uh, and this, if I, if I can indulge in a little bit of yeah, please. justified cynicism here, uh, you have to consider the political utility of that view. Mm. If you say God hates you and is going to torture you forever, um, you had better stay on the right side of God's anointed king. Mm. And you'd better stay on the right side of God's anointed pope and cardinals and, and bishops and priests because if you offend any of them, then uh, you're on the wrong side of God. So suddenly the power of eternal torture is added to the people who have the power of uh, physical, uh, temporal torture. And the whole thing just becomes an authoritarian dream come true, if you want to say Mm -hmm. it that way, or or an authoritarian nightmare uh, is another way to say it. And the older I get, uh, Glenn, the more I pay attention to the political ramifications of beliefs mm. and uh, the political outworking of beliefs, and and this this uh, the the politics that goes along with penal substitutionary atonement theory, which arises in the medieval era, which is an era of authoritarianism because it's an era of social chaos. Mm. Um, uh, boy, it, it's 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 a dangerous cocktail. Yeah. People. No. Do you do you have any resources that you'd recommend just of reading a little bit further on that for our listeners, just if they're interested in that? <clears throat> um, Off the top of your head. Well, uh, I know one you mentioned in your one of your books was The Future of Faith by Harvey Cox. Yes. Um, Harvey goes back and looks at some of this. 
Uh, you know, I, I'm sad to say I, I don't think there's been enough mm. analysis done on this sort of thing, but uh, I'll mention one. A woman named Rita Nakashima Brock wrote a book called Saving Paradise, mm. and she explores one dimension of this uh, in, in a very powerful way, um, Saving Paradise. She does it through the window of art, okay, uh, and it's, it's very powerful. Um, uh, I... Uh, but I, I, and then I, I've written about this in several of my books. Mm-hmm. Um, the middle section of Great Spiritual Migration, I talk about something called the doctrine of discovery, uh, and and the theological roots of the conquistadors, and th- that's related to this because this idea that there is a God who authorizes a certain hierarchy and gives them the rights to do anything that God commands, including genocide and enslavement. Yeah, it's all related to, the, yeah. to this, this view, uh, this authoritarian view of God. And, and it, you know, once you see that as the backdrop, and then you read the Gospels, Jesus just becomes radiant, because you realize, in a bizarre way, what Jesus is doing is he's deconstructing an authoritarian view of God, and is revealing instead this compassionate parent, this uh, loving companion, uh, you know, just turning it all upside, uh, all upside down. Mm, that's so good. Oh man. I'm taking so many notes right now. <laughs> uh, so let me move on to my second question. Um, this one comes from page one Oh three, um, of your book. I just want to read the paragraph really quick. Um, you said that when Moses is given the 10 commandments, he doesn't say that Abraham's religion was wrong because he didn't have those commandments. And when Solomon builds an elaborate temple of stone, he doesn't say that Moses' religion was wrong because he had only a tent of cloth. And when the prophet Amos, Isaiah, and Micah come along, they don't advocate rejecting their religion and culture, even though they are highly critical of its spiritual hypocrisy and social injustice. They want their religion to expand, to evolve, to learn, and to grow. The same is true with Jesus. He came, he said, not to abolish or replace, but to fulfill what came before him. Then you ask this question, can our hearts expand to embrace a larger, grander, inclusive God who demonstrates solidarity with all rather than hostility to some? And uh, I love that question because, you know, I was raised and I know like a lot of my listeners were raised as well to believe that, you know, Jesus is the only way. You know, he said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we've interpreted that to mean it's Christianity or the highway. You know, believe in Jesus and go to heaven or disbelieve and, and go to hell like we just got done talking about. And there's no room for other ways, no room for other religions, no convert everyone is the goal. And I was wondering if you could just help us understand kind of your thinking behind this idea of an inclusive God, an inclusive Jesus, amidst the many seemingly exclusive things that the Bible seems to say, like the verse about him being the way, the truth, and the life. Sure. Well, there's so much there to talk about. But the the first thing we've got to do is say, look, if God is about exclusion, Mm. Jesus did a really, really bad job. (laughs) Because Jesus is willing to sit at table, which in the in the uh, ancient world, you know, is is a sign of solidarity. Mm. Uh, He's willing to sit at the table with all the wrong people. He's willing to heal people of other religions. He, you know, you just, Jesus did a really bad job of representing an exclusive God. Yeah. Um, and even the parables where he tells where there's exclusion, the irony is 
he's what he's basically doing is he's taking all of the assumptions about exclusion and turning them on their heads. Mm-hmm. So instead of it being, uh, we Jews are uh, going to heaven and Gentiles are going to hell, which by the way, Jews did not believe, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus day. Um, they believed that the rich and socially acceptable were going to heaven and all of those, uh, uh, and actually I should say a minority of Jews even believed in hell in Jesus day. It was a minority called the Pharisees, the majority, the Sadducees and others, they were more traditional. They didn't accept this newfangled idea of hell, but what Jesus does in a sense, he deconstructs hell and he says, Oh no, it's the rich people who step over the poor people in the gutter outside their front door. They're the ones who are really in trouble. See? Mm-hmm. So I think you, you, you put Jesus in his context and you realize he is reversing. He's, he's just, he's flipping the tables really yeah. theologically, just as he did uh, in the temple in that story. Um, but uh, when you mentioned John 14, 6, um, if folks are interested, I actually wrote a little short ebook on this because I get asked about this so often and it's available on my website, which is brianmclaren.net. It's just mm-hmm. called, is Jesus the only way? Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and the reason I had to write a short ebook about it is because the Gospel of John is such a rich book. Mm-hmm. And uh, to really understand what's going on in John uh, 14, 6, uh, it, it, it's, it, it, it's more complicated than I can just say in a short sentence, right? I can't do it justice in a short sentence. Mm-hmm. But let, let me say a couple of things. The first thing in John 14, 6 is... If you look at John 14, 5, it does not say, and Thomas came to Jesus and said, what about people of other religions? What people <laughs> have never heard about you? And yeah. Jesus said, right, that's not what John 14, 5 says. Yeah. And um, uh, John 14, 5 shows that the disciples are not asking this about other people. They're asking about themselves in response to a very specific thing Jesus said, which was, where I'm going, you know. And the way you know, and they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. How do we know the way, right? So, um, so what John 14, 6 is talking about is not what Christians who quote it think it's talking about. It's mm-hmm. not talking about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. I think what Jesus is saying is something more like this. Um, uh, what's the right way to, to, to live with God? What's the right way to follow God? Um, is it violence? Is it killing people you disagree with? Is it hate? Is it judging people you disagree with? No, none of those things are right. And Jesus says, I'm the way. Look at me. How have I treated people? I've loved people. I've healed people. I haven't, uh, when other people are ready to stone somebody, I, I defend them, right? Hmm. Everything about Jesus goes against the way that John 14, 6 is, uh, is frequently quoted. And then you go ahead a couple of verses and Jesus says, and the disciples still don't get it. And they're saying all <laughs> stupid things. And, and then Jesus says, look, you guys, uh, one of them says, just show us the father. Okay. That'll be enough. Just show <laughs> us the father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. And then you have to say, how many people did Jesus torture? How many people did Jesus kill? Mm. And then you think, isn't it ironic that we quote John 14 to make Jesus, uh, you know, to, 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 in a sense, betray everything Jesus uh, yeah. exemplified. And mm-hmm. so to connect that with a quote that you read earlier, if, if we could say, look, Abraham is a huge step forward. And then Moses comes along and that's a huge step forward. And then the prophets come along and it's a huge step forward. And then Jesus comes along. 
it's a huge step forward. To follow Jesus means to be willing to take that step with him. Mm. So that's what I would say. It, it, it absolutely is a step into understanding God as the kind of God who, when the younger son takes his inheritance and runs away, God doesn't, you know, reject him and send him out into the gutter or even make him a slave, but God welcomes back, uh, welcomes that son back as a, as a beloved child. And that's, you know, that's, that's what Jesus, I think, is, is teaching us and showing us. Hmm. Yeah, and taking that verse without taking in the, you know, keeping in mind the verse before it and the context of the passage is the perfect example of what happens when we take a, a verse just as it is out of its, out of its book, out of the other verses that surround it. And we kind of read into it um, what we what we think is really there. Can, can I? Uh, I tell the story in that little ebook, but can I just tell you a quick yeah. story about this? Yeah, yeah please. Um, there's a Muslim uh, uh, writer, wonderful human being named Ibu Patel, and uh, Ibu started something called the Interfaith Youth Corps. And Ibu is a friend of mine. And first time we met, we were talking, and I said, uh, "Ibu, you Muslims have a really big advantage over us Christians." And he yeah. laughed and says, "What are you talking about?" I said, whenever I ask a Muslim what their attitude is toward people of other faiths, every single time Muslims quote to me a verse or surah from the Quran that says, uh, where God says, we have made you different so that you would seek to understand one another. Yeah. I, I said, and every time I ask a Christian, they quote John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father right? <laughs> in this aggressive way. Ibu laughs and he says, Brian, believe me, there are verses in the Quran that Muslims could quote that would be a lot less friendly than that one. Mm. And then he said, and believe, and I'm sure there are verses in the Bible that Christians could quote that would be much more friendly than that yeah. one. Wow. And then he said, the question you've got to ask yourself is why do Muslims quote that verse and why do Christians quote their verse? And I said, well, it's because that's what their teachers taught them. Yeah. And then he smiled. He says, the question is, why would their teachers teach them that that's the verse to quote? And that's the thing I've got to ask. And if you don't mind me getting a little uh, edgy here, I have to say, I have to ask this as a white Christian, because mm -hmm. the same white Christians who taught that, you know, everybody else, that, that God's, God's default mode toward people is, I want to send you to hell to suffer forever because you haven't you know, join my religion. Uh, the, the same white Christians who preach that were going around the world making slaves. We're going around the world stealing the lands of native peoples. We're going around the world uh, oppressing women. You can the, the list goes on and on. And I have to say, if that if they taught us to abuse that verse in that way, mm. then we we have to have some. We have to grow up and do some thinking for ourselves. And. And that's what I try to, uh, that's what I think John 14, 6 is one of the most interesting verses to do that with, because it's not just looking at the verses right before and right after. If you, that, that theme of I'm going somewhere and you can't follow me runs right through the gospel of John. It is a wild and interesting theme. And that's what I try to explore. That's so good. Yeah. So I think that's huge because like you said, you know, we, we've been taught that way. We've been taught to read the verse that way. And I think that's why, that's why I and a lot of other people find your work so inspiring is because, you know, you're raising up and teaching perhaps that same verse, but in a much different light. And um, I think that's just so powerful. 
Well, thanks. And, and frankly, that's what Jesus does, too. Yeah. You know, Jesus takes uh, passages from the Hebrew Scriptures and says, well, you've heard it said, you know, this is what you should do. But I'm saying to you, he's right. saying, I'm not coming to just abolish the law. I'm helping you see the intent of the law. Where was the law taking you? What was its trajectory? What direction was going in? It's time to take the next step. And, and, um, and it's almost as if we Christians couldn't bear to go with Jesus on that next step. So we figured out a way to, uh, to yeah. back up. And yeah, absolutely. I think too, like even that paragraph that you, that I just read in your book, you know, that progression throughout the Bible just shows a real evolution of um, faith. And I think, I think more than anything else, you know, you touched on that earlier about the Bible. We used to read it like as a constitution and a book of laws, but you know, I think it's more like um, almost like a model of what a growing and evolving faith ought to look like, because you have these people in the Old Testament who see God in one way, and in the middle of the Old Testament, they maybe start to see him a different way. Jesus comes along and looks entirely different. It's not like we're throwing away everything from the past as much as it is we're looking at that progression and that growth. And if we could look at our own lives, I think the same way, um, I think the world would be, and the church would be a much, maybe nicer place. <laughs> I, I think so, Glenn. And I'll, I'll just tell you from my experience, and I bet it's the same for you. When you start reading the Bible that way, it's way more interesting. Yeah. And it feels you're being way fairer to the literature itself. You know, you're, you're, you're taking the text even more seriously than the people who always tried to sort of wrestle it into their system and constitution or whatever. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So, Hey, look, we're, we're pretty much out of our time. Um, I want to let you go. And I have like 30,000 other questions I could just keep asking you all day long. Um, but I, I do thank you so much for taking the time to come out um, of your day, just to talk to me today. It's been, it's been amazing. And before you go, is there any, like um, any project maybe that you're working on that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I will share one. Um, I uh, have been working with another uh, gifted author named Gareth Higgins and a wonderful illustrator named Heather Lynn Harris on a children's book. It's called Corey and the Seventh Story. And um, if folks are interested, they should stay tuned on my website, uh, brianmclaren.net. And they can also look up the seventh story and they'll find uh, soon a website up about that because uh, we're hoping that that it's, it's a book a picture book for children, but it's really for grownups too. And we're hoping that it will be useful for people who are trying to see uh, Jesus and the good news uh, that he communicated in a fresh light. That'll be great because I was actually just talking to my wife about this last night that like I went to the bookstore uh, about a week ago to look for just some kind of Bible book or something for my one and a half year old daughter. And like every book I flipped through, it's just like the same yeah. message, you know, and it's just so hard to find something that's um, open, so to speak, to the things that we've been talking about in the last few minutes yeah. together. So that'll be fantastic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure, Glenn, and a great pleasure being with you. Thanks. This has been fantastic. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much for dropping by today. It was great to have you here. Um, If you could do me a favor, if this was helpful for you, encouraging, inspiring, challenging, whatever the case may be, if you could head over to your podcast listening platform of choice, whether that be iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, whatever, and if you could leave a comment or a rating, that would be really helpful for me because the more ratings that the podcast gets, 
the easier it is for people to find it. And also the more comments that there are, the more that people know what to expect when they tune in to listen. Uh, So if you could do that for me, just take a few moments, that would be incredibly helpful. And also be on the lookout in the upcoming months, there will be another online gathering uh, going on hosted by the What If Project. So last fall, we did something where we gathered about 10 to 15 people from across the country, and they came together uh, once a week over the course of three months to study the book of Mark. Uh, We will be doing something similar in the spring, probably not as long of a period of time, uh, probably a little bit shorter, and uh, it's going to be something really, really exciting. So be on the lookout for that. Um, The ways to sign up will be on whatifproject.net and also on the What If Project Facebook page and my own personal Facebook page and Twitter account um, as well. So you can look me up on Facebook, Glenn Siepert, and also on Twitter. That's S-I-E-P-E-R-T. My first name is Glenn, G-L-E-N-N. So again, thank you so much for dropping by. Be on the lookout for more stuff, and I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.